Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're looking at the end of the book of Romans, Romans 15, 14 to 16, 27. And we're joined today by Dr. Rafael Rodriguez. Dr. Rafael Rodriguez is professor of New Testament at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. Among his books are two on the book of Romans. He's the author of If You Call Yourself a Jew, Reappraising Paul's Letter to the Romans. And he is also co-edited with uh, Matthew Thiessen, The So-Called Jew in Paul's Letter to the Romans. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Rafael. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, Will. Uh, glad to be here. Raphael, uh, you know, I saw on your faculty profile that you uh, you like movies. Was there a movie in particular that you watched during the pandemic or two or three? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, watched all the movies, right? Uh, I think like everybody, I went back and watched, um, uh, what was the Gwyneth Paltrow movie now? Um, was it called Pandemic uh, or Outbreak? Or Contagion or... Contagion or- that's it contagion contagion yeah, okay. yes uh yes. I, I watched uh i watched that one um i couldn't make myself out. do that I, I mean i thought about watching that but i just thought it would freak me out too much and so uh-huh. I, I stayed away but it, it was like you were okay it, it was freaky i found comfort in that in the movie the headlines were tens of thousands died in a single day or millions dead. And of course, we, we never hit those numbers. We, we hit dramatic numbers and it, it was tragic, but I was like, okay, okay, we're not there. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Um, and today we're not there yet. <laughs> right. So that's helpful for perspective at least. So we're not going to be in that kind of, you know, that movie with Will Smith, gosh, where he's all alone and it's him and his I dog. Am I am legend. I am legend. We're not in yeah. I am legend territory. That's right. Or if we hear about chimpanzees breaking out of labs and starting armed camps outside of San Francisco, <laughs> then uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's always helpful to have some perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are talking about Romans uh, and you've done some scholarship on Romans. What drew you to Romans? Was there any personal connection or just an intellectual interest for you? Actually, it, it came from a teaching assignment. Um, we were expanding our MA New Testament program here at Johnson and we were adding two courses, a introduction to graduate research and a, uh, and a course on Romans. And there were two of us faculty, neither of us were Pauline scholars. Um, Welcome. And the other, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the club. And, I'm not in that club. It seems like a great club. That's, uh, and so the, uh, um, uh, the, the classes I taught in that program were not text-based. And so I said, I, you know, I'd prefer, if I, I, I can teach either one, but I'd prefer the Romans class so that I can get into some text uh, with these students. Um, so I was assigned that and I had taught Romans before, but not, you know, not for a number of years. And I thought rather than going back to my well, I'll work through the text, um, you know, work through translating it myself, kind of kind of develop my reading as I'm developing the, uh, the course. Um, and so I was quite surprised um, to find how much of how, how many of my views had changed since the last time I had uh, I had taught Romans. And about halfway through developing the course, I realized I'm not aware of anybody who reads Romans the way I do. 
um, which was an encouragement in that I thought that this can probably be published and a discouragement in that <laughs> that probably means I'm wrong. Um, uh, so I've put it out there. It's been well received. Uh, obviously, a lot of people think I'm uh, uh, wrong, but um, but a lot of people find at least aspects of my reading um, uh, persuasive. And so it's just been good to have something to engage with. How would you crystallize in like one or two sentences something that characterizes your reading or approach to Romans? Yeah, if I could take two sentences, I would say the less controversial but my, but still minority view is that Paul's intended audience, the the person, the, the people he thinks he's writing to, are Gentile Christians in Rome. Um, that's a that's a standard scholarly view, but not the majority one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the one that's more distinctive to me and a handful of others is that when Paul creates his um, fictional rhetorical interlocutor, the person that he's dialoguing with, uh, he imagines. Uh, a person that he says, uh, um, if you are called a Jew in Romans 2, 17, he imagines that person as a Gentile, you know, somebody who's uh, ethnically not Jewish, somebody who was born into a non-Jewish family, uh, and then who then uh, converted, uh, became a proselyte to uh, to Judaism. Um, and so what Paul is talking about uh, throughout most of the text is... Um, Problems with conversion, uh, problems with Torah as the interface for Gentiles to the covenants of uh, of Israel, and then the gospel as solutions to the, th- those right. problems. Great. I mean, I should say that that view is starting, I think, to pick up some uh, some attention. Uh-huh. This, th- that that in particular, and I think it's for me, it's been one of the more challenging views to interact with. <laughs> Um, but we'll, it, it'll be relevant, especially as we talk about the names that appear uh, in the list that Paul addresses at the end of Romans and what, what the implications are for the composition of his audience. Absolutely. Um, well, Raphael, how do you see Romans 15 verses 14 through the end, this ending part of Romans? How does it fit into the book as a whole? Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, the way we talk about letters, whether ancient letters or contemporary ones is, and these are really technical terms here, but I'll try to be, uh, I'll I'll try to keep it easy. Letters have beginnings, middles and ends, right? So, uh, (laughs) so uh, um, uh, I find that the passage that we're talking about today, 1514 through the, uh, through the end of the letter is the, the end, right? Uh, Paul has, Paul has accomplished his rhetorical goals. He's done what he wants to do in the letter, and so now he's he's kind of cl- he's closing the letter. Uh, so if I do, you know, if I were to divide the the whole letter up into those three broad areas, one, chapter one verses one to sixteen would be the opening, uh, then one uh, uh, sorry uh, through verse seventeen, uh, and then chapter one verse eighteen through fifteen thirteen would be the body of the letter where Paul's doing his rhetorical maneuvering, where he's engaging the interlocutor, engaging his readers through the interlocutor. And then in chapter 15, 14, he sets that rhetorical perspective down. Uh, and it's just, again, Paul as letter writer saying, so here's some final comments uh, and whatnot. And for you, what is the most difficult part of understanding this last section of the letter? Because there is actually a lot going on here, even though it's, you know, these extra comments at the end to a, to a degree. So what do you struggle with? And then how do you understand that difficult issue yourself? 
Well, um, you know, I, I think probably the most important aspects of Romans 14 are kind of the cultic language, the the priestly language uh, in that first paragraph in verses 14 through uh, 17 of uh, chapter 15. Um, and then, uh, as uh, Ronnie mentioned, wrestling with the names, the, the people that Paul um, uh, sends greetings to um, through his readers. Um, and then I would say another interesting aspect that's often uh, uh, often overlooked is the discussion of Paul's uh, is Paul's of Paul's travel plans of where mm. Paul has been, uh, where he's wanted to go, where he intends, uh, where he intends to go. I think there have been some slight misunderstandings um, uh, of this text, particularly based on uh, misunderstandings that are rooted in earlier sections of uh, of the book. Hopefully we'll have a chance to dig into some of that stuff as yeah. we go along. Yeah. Great. Now in chapter 15, verses 15 through uh, 16, we read this. Paul says to his audience, so he, tell, he tells his audience that he's written to them uh, boldly about some things. And he says this, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offspring of the, the not the offspring, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, you mentioned in your book, um, uh, if you call yourself a Jew, in that book, you mention that Paul piles up cultic language, right? Those are, those are, that's how you describe it. What are the cultic terms that Paul uses here, and what is their significance theologically? Yeah, he, 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 he uses five terms uh, here that are sometimes lost in our uh, translation translations, or even if they're not lost, we have to, you know, be a bit intentional about applying them to a cultic con context. Um, he speaks first of, in verse, uh, um, verse 16, as being a servant of Christ, right? Um, and the language there of being a servant um, uh, is that uh, liturgon in Greek, you can maybe hear that we get our word liturgy uh, from uh, from this word. And so, you know, I might translate this. I think I think the translation you were reading uh, describes it as a priestly servant uh, of Christ, you know, which right away kind of gets our interest. A liturgon, a, a, a servant or a priestly servant here doesn't necessarily have to be cultic, but it's an interesting term for Paul to use. And then he goes on, and just a few words later, he refers specifically to the priestly service, uh, the priestly service on behalf of the gospel of God or for the gospel of God. And that kind of pulls that earlier reference to servant into that cultic language. And so Paul's, Paul's thinking with the temple, and this is an important thing, I think, to keep in mind. Romans is written around the year 57, and so the, the temple is still standing in Jerusalem, right? It's a it's a place that Paul is on his way to visit, um, and it's in his mind, and he's locating himself and his readers there in its sacred and holy, uh, holy space. And then the next word that he uses uh, is the word offering there, right? That's what that's what people bring to temples um, uh, and to the temple in Jerusalem. And he refers to the offering of the Gentiles um, and kind of the scholarly debate there is, uh, does he imagine himself as a priest who receives the offering from the Gentiles and then offers it, places it on the altar? Or does he see himself as uh, a priest offering the Gentiles onto that altar. Um, 
and that's that's the uh, the debate, and and the text doesn't necessarily force us one way or the other. Uh, and then he describes that offering as, uh, or his hopes that that offering would be acceptable and sanctified. And both of these are standard cultic terms to dis- to describe an offering. So as I step back from these five terms that Paul uses in 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 the span of you know just one verse, really, mm-hmm. um, it's it's um, it's shocking. And then when I uh, when I remember that Paul has been doing this really since chapter one, but especially most dramatically in chapter 12, that famous passage at the beginning of chapter 12, you know, in view of the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice um, uh, and so on and so forth. We, 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 we want to ask what's going on here. What, what, why is Paul thinking in these terms? Why is he placing himself imaginatively speaking and his readers in this sacred uh, space and I think it helps us to understand what Paul thinks the gospel is. It is a it is a bringing near. It is a uh, um, it is a um, actually I, I want to stick with that language. A bringing near of people who are far off uh, to the uh, to the um, to the God of Israel. Unless we think of that just as you know metaphorically or ethically or something like that. Paul uses, you know, the language of physical approach, you know, in, in the year 57, if you wanted to go and be in the actual literal presence of Israel's God, where do you go? You go to Jerusalem, you go to the temple, you go to the altar. And as you, and as you're moving in these directions, you're drawing ever nearer to God, passing through higher and higher levels of, of holiness. And so what's surprising about Romans is that Paul, um, Paul takes people who are furthest removed from the holiness of God, Gentiles, and he places them in the center of that holiness, the sacred altar. Do you, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder what you think of um, thinking about some of the eschatological pilgrimage texts that we have uh-huh. in the Old Testament, right? And in other Second Temple mm-hmm. Jewish sources, right? So we have, uh, now it's conceived in different ways. So so in, in the book of Isaiah or in Micah or in Zechariah, we have these texts where the nations, the Gentiles, are going to come to Jerusalem. Yeah, let me read one for you here. This is Zechariah 8, 22 to 23. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from nations of every language shall take hold of a Jew, grasping his garment and saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So sometimes uh, there, you know, we see that these instances of texts where Gentiles or nations are coming to Jerusalem, sometimes they're coming to be instructed in the law, to be instructed, you know, from, uh, from the law of God. Sometimes they're bringing offering or giving gifts. Um does, does that kind of, squ- do, I mean, how do you, do you fit that together with what's going on here with Paul is going to collect, uh, you know, gifts to bring to the saints in Jerusalem? Does that kind of fit with that idea? Or what do you, what do you think of that? Absolutely. I think all of that is, is relevant. You know, a passage that Paul himself doesn't directly cite, but that Luke cites in reference to Paul might be in uh, a passage that Luke actually attributes to Paul, puts in his mouth, um, is, you know, Isaiah 49, 6, where the Lord says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Um, 
And yeah, I think that's exactly what, what Paul's doing. Um, I mean, let's not forget that just the immediately preceding passage in chapter 15 has Christ praying the Psalms um, in exactly this fashion, right? That, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from, from verse nine. Um, and again, I, I, it, I, uh, as, as Paul is presenting this, these are the words of the Psalms, but it's Christ's voice who's speaking, uh, Jesus says, and so I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice you Gentiles along with his people. Uh, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples give him praise. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall appear, and even one who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will place their hope upon him. So this is exactly how uh, how Paul sees himself is as the one who goes. You know, th- there's this double uh, um, uh, movement here. Uh, Paul is the one who goes out right from Zion to uh, to proclaim this news, and then having gone out, he collects stuff and brings it brings it back to the Lord. Um, so that's metaphorically, right? The, I, I do take offering the Gentiles as Paul mentally, rhetorically placing his converts on Jerusalem's okay. altar, but it is also literal in that he's collecting an offering right. uh, and, he, and gifts and bringing it to the poor, the saints in, in Judea. Yeah. Great. Um, how can Paul, now, how can Paul present himself as a priest to the Gentiles. I mean, first, you know, weren't uh, the priests were Levites and Paul's not a Levite, right? He calls himself uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. So how did, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, it's interesting. He, I mean, you're right. He, he identifies himself as a Benjamite. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm sorry. Uh, He calls himself a a Benjamite, um, uh, not just elsewhere, but here in Romans in, in chapter 11, um, and it's interesting because we see Hebrews ex- um, wrestling with that same kind of tension, that if Jesus is a priest, but Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and no, no one ever said anything about a priest coming from the tribe of Judah, how can this be? You know, Hebrews appeals to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, Psalm 110 to solve that uh, that conundrum. But Paul's doing something different, I, I think. And, uh, you know, here I'm being a bit interpretive. I have to admit that Paul doesn't ever say, hey, as I'm presenting myself as this priest, I want you to remember Exodus 19. But that's what I remember as I'm uh, as I'm as I'm reading Paul. You know, Exodus 19 is this um, is that uh, wonderful text where Israel has come up out of um, um, out of uh, Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea. Uh, the the Lord, their mighty warrior, has vanquished their enemies. They're coming through the desert. The Israelites, like children, are are we there yet? You know, <laughs> I'd, I'd like something else to eat. I'm hungry, and then they get to Mount Sinai. The Lord calls Moses up onto uh, onto the mountain, and he says uh, he says to Moses, he says, "I want you to go back down the mountain." It's, it's funny uh, in Exodus 19 how many trips are up and down, uh, up and down the mountain. You feel bad for Moses who gets to the top of the mountain. <sighs> And then uh, um, he's getting his steps in. Yeah, he's getting his. That's right. He's getting. He's getting his steps in. That's exactly right. Um, And but the Lord says to uh, uh, says to Moses, I've scrolled. uh, Oh, I'm in Exodus one, not Exodus uh, nineteen. He says uh, he he says to uh, Moses, I want you to go down and say to the Israelites, and then here we are in verse four. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession of all the peoples, be the whole with his mind, but you will be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the uh, to the Israelites. And we know that this passage was uh, significant, um, uh, not just in Second Temple Jewish uh, thinking, but even in the New Testament. Um, you know, Peter is going to uh, um, is going to apply exactly this passage to his readers in in First Peter chapter uh, chapter two um, and and. Um, most scholarship, myself included, would identify Peter's readers as Gentiles. Uh, so, you know, has that in common with Romans. Um, but here is Paul identifying himself, not his readers, but himself as part of that priestly kingdom, mm -hmm. right? And so, as you corrected, correctly noted, Ronnie, uh, the Levites are the priests that mediate between Israel and Israel's God. But Israel is the nation that is positioned as the priest between all the other nations uh, and Israel's God. And that's exactly how I think how Paul sees himself, that if if um, if Israel has representatives between her and God, then Israel also has representatives between the nations and God. And that's what that's what Paul uh, that's what Paul is. Yeah, thanks, Raphael. Let's move on to uh, verses 19 and 20 in chapter 15. So here, Paul says that from Jerusalem and as far around as Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Thus, I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. Now, mm -hmm. what is Paul's concern there with not building on someone else's foundation? What does that mean and why is he concerned about that? Yeah, my my first impression and the thing that I think I, I was grown up taught about this passage is that Paul Paul was a leading edge of the gospel, right? That Paul didn't go to places where the gospel already had established adherence, um, that he was going to places where that, oh, this is new, this is news. We've never, we've never heard this. Um, and I don't necessarily want to deny that. I just don't think that's Paul's point here in this text. For one thing, I'm not sure that that's actually how Paul conducted his his mission. I mean, as you read First Corinthians, it's very clear that other people have also been influential in bringing the gospel uh, uh, to Corinth, and that Paul is, in fact, wrestling with this this very thing with mm -hmm. its factionalism um, um, uh, and and whatnot. And even his uh, even his extended stint in Antioch, uh, as portrayed in the Book of Acts, is not. Uh, Paul's not the one who brings the uh, gospel to Antioch. It's where he it's where he resides uh, and teaches for um, I, I think for a period of about a year before he and Barnabas are sent out uh, and whatnot. But the most important thing I think um, for this particular passage is that Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, right? And of course, Paul um, uh, Paul is writing to established communities uh, in Rome, and he's never been to Rome, and yet he's doing something with the gospel amongst um, amongst these Christians. So there's something else going on other than just saying, "I don't preach the gospel where the gospel's already been preached." Uh, something else is going on uh, on here, uh, and I think that something else is an ethnic something else, right? That Paul is not and uh, is not the herald of the gospel to people who already know the divine revelations, the divine scriptures, the legia, as Paul says in Romans 3 uh, uh, of God. He is the one who takes the gospel out into 
if I can use the language of Isaiah 49 again, into the darkness, right? He's the leading edge of the light uh, in, in, in ethnic terms. Other people may have, um, may have advanced the gospel to the Gentiles um, in Rome, but it is still his responsibility. It is still, uh, to use the language he uses, the grace that was given to him. And Paul's kind of jealous in guarding that, in protecting that. Other people may participate in this, but they should understand, uh, I think Paul would say, that they're participating in his ministerial activity, that bringing the gospel to Gentiles is his responsibility. He says so in, in Galatians 2, right? This was the, uh, this was the, um, uh, the agreement that was met with the so-called pillars of the Jerusalem Church. Peter would be apostle to the circumcised, I to the, uh, to the uncircumcised. But I don't want to get rid of that geographical um, dynamic of, uh, of Paul's laying new foundation altogether, because, of course, what he's trying to do is to not just get to Rome, but through Rome to, the, to, to Spain, right? <laughs> and I think it's easy for us to just hear, oh, Paul wants to go to Spain. I hear it's nice this time of year. <laughs> um, but, but what Spain con- what Spain conveys in the ancient world, which it no longer does to us, is that Spain is the edge of the world, right? There, there's what what what's further west than Spain? No, nothing. There's there's water, and if you go out too far uh, that way, you may fall off the edge of the earth. So, uh, <laughs> so Paul's going as far as uh, as far as you can go. You know it. it you know it, it it would be like it would be like going to you know Seattle. You know beyond. On Seattle, what's there? Uh, just monsters, <laughs> monsters and water and rain and, and Canadians. Um, Paul wants to take the God. <laughs> Paul wants to take the gospel that right. far because God's concern, God's interest, God's claim extends uh, extends. And that does far. that connect with the eschatological passages that we just talked about earlier? This idea of going <laughs> to the ends of the earth. Yeah, absolutely. It's that double movement, right? So Israel matters. Israel. Uh, matters but that's not to say the uh the 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 margins the fringes the uh the ends of the earth uh don't matter they matter because they belong to the one who resides at the center and he lays uh he he lays uh he god uh, lays claim to all of it and paul's going out there one to plant the flag but two to tell the people hey one you do not know created you provides for you loves you calls you conforms you to his son transforms you renews you and enables that that um life-giving life-sustaining love that is the fulfillment of uh of torah that's what he wants to uh advance Raphael, in chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 15 paul mentions some 28 people who he wants to greet so just to give us a sampling, here are a few. In verse 3, he says, Greet uh, Prisca and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Epinetus, who was the first, first fruits in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who worked very hard among you. What do the names tell us? But you've been talking about kind of the uh, ethnic edge of the gospel. Uh, what do the names tell us about the ethnic composition of the church at Rome? I mean, this is, you know, when you open up a commentary, this is the first question you get, right? Who, who was in the audience, right? Who was in the communities uh, that Paul is addressing? What do these names tell us about that or not tell us? Yeah, about that? yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the, the, uh, the names 
at the same time, tell us a lot and don't tell us nearly as much as we would like to know, right? So when we're asking the question about who is Paul writing to, the what we're looking for is information about Roman Christianity. And, you know, Romans written in the year 57 is the earliest, uh, is the earliest literary in, uh, information we have about the gospel in, in Rome. And what's incredibly perplexing about Romans is that the gospel is already there. Right. There's already an established com uh, community and it's and it's so there that Paul needs to write them before he shows up uh, in order uh, in order to to prepare the way. And so um, and so that you, you open up those commentaries and they're and they and they turn to Romans 16 to uh, to provide some insight into the nature or the characteristics of uh, Roman Christianity. And then there's a slight and it, it it's not malicious and it's not pulling attention, I think it's actually unintentional, but there's a slight bait and switch. Um, and the commentators will often go from talking about the character of Roman Christianity to the character of Paul's audience, right? As if those are the two, uh, as if those two are the same thing. In my reading of Romans, what I wanna do is I wanna recognize that those are two separate questions. And so I want to look to Romans itself to see how Paul describes his audience, how Paul describes the image he has in his mind of the people that he's writing to, who is he writing to? But then when we get to Romans 16, we find out that there are other people in Rome besides the people that he's writing to, and that he tells his readers, his audience, the people that he's writing to, hey, tell those people, I said hi. And so as as he's greeting these uh, these named people, we get a lot of uh, we get a lot of information. We see we see men, we see women, we see Jewish names we see Greek names. It's not quite the same thing to say Gentile names because of course it's common to take uh, Greek names uh, in, uh, and, and, and be a Jew, but it's pretty well accepted that some of these people are, uh, are, um, are, not, uh, are not Jews. Um, we see individuals of, uh, of Christians, the church that meets in the house. I think there's a few, uh, the, the communities here. Um, and the, the, there's there's two ways to read the text, and unfortunately, the text doesn't make clear which one is is correct. So I, th I think I, either is defensible, although I prefer one. The 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 most common way of reading the text is that here is Paul identifying the people that he's writing to. When he says greet, for instance, Andronicus and Junia, he's writing to Andronicus and Junia, hmm. but he's telling other Roman Christians that he's writing to tell them I said hi, you know, and, and same for everybody else. Greet Mary. Well, Mary's among Paul's Paul's readers. Right. And so so the third person address is what we've got, you know, where Paul doesn't say, I greet you, Mary. That would right. be a second person address. Instead he says, Hey, you greet Mary for me. That's a third person address. That that third person address is kind of, you know, rhetorical. It's kind of uh, it's it's Paul giving a, a a greeting, even though it looks like he's not uh, he's not giving that greeting. Mm -hmm. It would be like some of those strange people that that we've encountered from time to time who refer to themselves uh, in the third person. Mm, Raphael, hungry, <laughs> right? Um, uh, kind of like that. And I don't want to say that that's impossible. I don't think it's impossible. I just don't think it's as compelling as reading the text rather more straightforwardly, which is to say, here's Paul telling his readers. I want you to greet these other people. And we find that Roman Christianity is very, very variegated, is very diverse, and that Paul has been writing to a section of the Roman church, the, the Gentile section, and he tells them, I want you to, I want you to send these, 
uh, I want you to send these greetings. I might say one more thing, which is that a lot of Romans is read as if the Gentiles in Rome are wrestling with a implicit or maybe even explicit anti-Semitism that, that Paul finds problematic, that the Gentiles in Rome are boasting over the Jews in Rome, haha, your life sucks, and it's because you're Jews and um, all that. And I don't see that anywhere in Romans. What I see in Romans are Gentile readers who are fascinated by all things Jewish, particularly the idea that Jesus, Israel's Messiah, might actually be king, not just of Israel, but even of, uh, uh, of them. And so what I see Paul doing is capitalizing on these relationships between Jews and Gentiles uh, in Rome and using them to extend his network. Um, you know, I, I know some of these people. I don't necessarily know you. You go tell them I said hi, and they'll tell you more about me. And so this is part of that ground laying work uh, for his own for his own arrival in Rome and ministry beyond that. Right. So when you're reading the Jewish and the Greek names that he's addressing, it does not indicate the composition of the audience to which he's writing. That's right. So in, in your view, the composition of the audience is entirely Gentile. That's, a, that that's right? exactly right. The, the language we use in, in the scholarship is the encoded audience, the audience that is encoded in the letter. And when, I, when I'm teaching this to my, to my students, I, I, um, I ask for somebody who has two parents at home um, and uh, you know, I get that volunteer and that's okay. So we've established you've got two parents at home. Um, and now I want you to imagine that you're writing a letter home to one of your parents. I'll let them pick which one. Um, and, um, and, and I kind of use that as an example of just because you have two parents at home doesn't mean that every letter that goes home is addressed to both your parents. Um, um, and that, uh, you know, so what would a letter look like if you were coding, you know, dear mom, and you were only writing to your, your mother, you may even assume that your dad, your dad's <laughs> going to find out about this letter. He's probably going to read it right. or mom's going to tell him about the letter uh, or something like that. But you were writing to mom, maybe it's her birthday or it's mother's day or whatever. Um, and if at the end of that letter, you say, oh, by the way, tell dad, I said, hi, that reference to dad does not, ah, oh, see the letter was to mom and dad the whole time. No, it, it was, it was to mom. It doesn't deny that dad is there. It doesn't deny that dad's important. Uh, it, it just affects how we interpret the early parts of the letter. Right. So we should probably follow up then with this question is what makes you think that the audience, what, let's say the names are not indicative of the composition of the audience. Okay. On your reading, what makes you, what makes you lean towards now saying that the uh, audience is entirely Gentile? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's that, you, you know, you asked me about my my one or two sentence, what makes my reading of Romans distinctive. Yeah. And this is that more broadly shared, but still minority view. And so here, right. none of this is original to me. I'm reading people like Stanley Stowers and Andrew Doss and Runa Thorsteinstein, um, Matt Thiessen, lots, uh, uh, lots of people. But the uh, the main texts that we point to in looking at Paul's encoded audience, how does Paul... How does Paul himself describe his readers? The main texts that we look to are chapter one, uh, they're uh, particularly verses five and six uh, of chapter one, and then also verses uh, 14 and 15, I think. I, I, I might want to include verse 13 uh, if, sure. if I bring that up. But yeah, 13, 14, 15. Uh, so chapter one, early in chapter one, verses five and six, later in chapter one, verses 14 and 15, uh, then... Well, let, let, me, uh, let, me read, let me read five and six, just, so, just oh. so we have it in our, in our heads. 
here. Sure. Um, so Paul says, basically, he's describing the gospel, and then he talks about you know, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So that's that's right. So, so that that for you signals that this he's writing to a Gentile audience, his encoded audience is a Gentile audience. That's exactly right. And then and then he reinforces that, um, you know, uh, later in the chapter when he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I'm in verse 13, that I've often intended to come to you, um, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. Um, and then verse uh, 14 and 15, I'm in I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Hence, my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's he's locating his readers among the the not just certain classes, but the entire spectrum of non-Jewish residents who are faithful to the gospel of Jesus. Greeks, barbarians, right? Those in the center, those on the island, the whole gamut right. of Gentile identity. You deal with those references. Uh, I just need to, to read them. Sure. Two other texts where Paul wrote 11, verse 13, where he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Uh, and then actually chapter 15, the passage that we're talking about, um, where Paul describes his readers uh, as Gentiles in uh, would say a couple of things. They would, at the beginning of chapter, uh, of chapter one, where we read verses five and six, they would then point to verse seven, where Paul says to all God's beloved in Rome. And they would say that that all expands beyond mm -hmm. the Gentiles, which is absolutely a possibility. They might even say, they often do say that the, um, that the reference to, uh, um, uh, to being among the Gentiles in verses five and six, uh, among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves may not be ethnic, right? The readers are Gentiles, but geographical. Maybe the readers are among the Gentiles. And so he's writing to diaspora uh, Jews uh, is, a, is a discussion that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's placed. Two, two more things. They would uh, point to the Jewish names in, in chapter 16. Absolutely. Right. And then, they would, and then the, the last thing is they would point to the regular Jewish theological tenor of Paul's letter to the Romans, the, mm -hmm. the appeals to Moses and Abraham and the reading of Torah uh, um, and, uh, and, and whatnot. The interplay of Jew and I, Gentile in Romans 9 through 11, the issue yeah, yeah, of yeah, strong yeah. and weak would come up as well in this in chapters Absolutely. 14 and 15. Yeah. Absolutely. And this implicit identification of the weak as being Jewish Christians and the strong as being Gentile Christians. It's right. not a hard and fast line because yeah. Paul is a Jewish Christian who identifies as strong. Mm -hmm. But of course, there he's separating from his Jewish identity. He's not he doesn't have the same hang ups as those Jews over there. Um, and, you know, maybe there's some Gentiles who have the same kind of Jewish hang ups. And so they also would be weak. But the identification of weak and strong would be ethnically mm -hmm. defined. So quickly, uh, besides trying to understand the historical context of this letter, what is the payoff of this distinction for understanding its message? Um, identifying the audience as you do, what do you see that, how do you see that paying off in terms of how you understand the letter? Yeah, that's, a, that's you know, why does it matter? Um, and, you know, uh, on the, so the, my first acknowledgement is, I'm a nerd with historical interests. So it kind of matters just because it's interesting, right? Like I just want to know what Romans is about. Related to that 
is I'm a, I'm a Christian who thinks that the, this is the word of God, right? I, I belong to a, a, a community, a body of believers who have identified this as the word of God. And so understanding it more accurately and precisely is not just an academic endeavor, but is also, uh, is, is also an element of worship and, uh, and, you know, loving God with all your, with all your mind, right? But then if I step back even further and I look at some of the challenges facing the church, theological challenges, social and cultural challenges and whatnot, and how Romans can be a resource in addressing those challenges, some of the things that interest me uh, in particular are that uh, one, we Christians don't always know what to do with the Old Testament, with the Hebrew Bible, right? With the with the first two thirds of uh, of of our of our canon, you know, we value it, we affirm it as the Word of God, but it's often like the end user license agreement. You know, I'm going to click agree just so that I can get to Matthew. Um, this is paining me just to hear you say this. But okay, <laughs> no, 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 no. Will you and I are on the same side, right? Do you not do you not perceive that oh, as the that reality? This isn't you. Of the oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, let me you know, let me and, recommend to the listeners Brent Strawn's The Old Testament is Dying <laughs> if you hear what Raphael is saying and saying actually I've kind of seen this view around me. But go Absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. You, you know, yeah. just a few years ago Andy Stanley gets himself into a bit of yep. hot water by saying Unhitch. we should unhitch our mm -hmm. faith from the Old Testament, right. you know, and and God bless him. I I, I you know, I, I I think I understand what he's trying to do, but but Part of that is because we have this view, not of, not of the Old Testament, but of the New Testament as being fundamentally set free, unhitched from that Old, uh, from, from that old Testament. Well, the only way we can do that is if we see God is doing uh, something new, something with a radical break, and Paul's authority for uh, being a herald of that radical break is just, well, he's an apostle. And I've, I've been wrestling with that ever since college, ever since my undergraduate days. When I was reading Galatians, um, me and my, my, my roommate, who's now a professor at the University of Dayton, we were talking about Paul's self-presentation in Galatians one day. Uh, again, you know, this, like I said, I'm a nerd. And we, so we're having this conversation as college students. And, and my, my roommate's like, you know, I just don't know that I can believe Paul if the whole basis for his authority is, well, I'm an apostle, so I'm saying this, and so that makes it true. Like, what about all the stuff that's already been said in the story of God's people? And, that, and that's always stuck with me. And so if, to take a specific example, if I'm reading Genesis 17, and I'm reading about the sign of, the, of circumcision that God gives to Abraham and to all the male descendants um, as an eternal covenant, as an eternal sign for, throughout your generations. There's nothing temporary about this, right? You know, it's, it's not until I say stop. It, <laughs> it sounds very permanent. How does Paul think he can do what he does? And, and as I was reading Romans, and in my way of reading Romans, what I found is that's no longer a problem because Paul isn't telling Jews God really doesn't care about the presence or absence of your foreskin. He's not, say, he's not saying that to Jews. He's saying that to Gentiles. Of course, the absence of foreskin isn't a problem for anybody, right? For, covenantally speaking, isn't a problem for anybody. But saying that to Gentiles becomes a bit of a problem. And so Paul's exposition of the gospel, uh, as we find it in Romans, is to explain how God can uh, incorporate these people into the offspring of Abraham. You know, here I'm making reference to um, 
to Romans 4 particularly, um, and Paul's quotation in Romans 4 of Genesis 17:5, where God says to Abram, I've made you the father of many nations. I think one of Paul's big concerns is pr protecting and honoring that word many. If all of the Gentiles who come to faith in Christ take it upon themselves to become Jews, as if that were actually possible, I don't think Paul thinks that's possible, but if they do this, where did the many go? It's, it's gone. Abraham becomes the father of one nation. But the, the, the global scope of God's covenant with Abraham is that Abraham is the father of many nations. And this is why Paul goes out among the Gentiles. Now, your question, Will, is why does it matter for us today? Well, it, it matters because I want to understand, what about me? What about my state? What about the condition that God finds me in? You know, I, I, I came to faith um, kind of late in high school. Uh, you know, I'm 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 depressed. I'm isolated. I'm 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 looking uh, down the barrel at uh, the prospect of adulthood. And am I am I how how am I going to how am I going to live like this? And what I find in Romans is a message from Paul that says, "Look, God's God's got a story. God's got a people. And rather than calling you to qualify to fit into that story." God takes you and writes you writes you in as you are. What what do you have to do? Uh, do you, you know, do you, do you do you pursue Torah? No, you don't have to pursue Torah. God transforms you by His Spirit. Does that mean Torah no longer matters? No, absolutely not. Torah has always promised that this is how God is going to going to relate to you. And so I think it actually broadens and reemphasizes some of the themes that we often say we find in Romans, but we find them by denying them to Paul's Jewish. Uh, heritage. And I think that's the fundamental misunderstanding. Right. So there's actually a lot theologically that we can take out of this list of names and the fact that it includes Jews and Gentiles and the way that it addresses them. So thanks for laying that out for us. Raphael, at the end here in verses 25 through 27, Paul now ends his letter. And it seems like he's going to recap some key themes, right, that are that come up throughout the letter. So he says this, he says, now to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, goodness, it's a long sentence, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. What are some of the key themes that kind of come out throughout his letter that are, he's now kind of bringing up again as he closes his letter? Yeah, what's 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 kind of surprising um, is that, uh, well, maybe it's not surprising. Uh, is that is that word mystery, that mysterion, um, which I suppose is is uh, um, uh, comes up in in um, uh, uh, in chapter chapter eleven. But there's something mysterious about the gospel. Well, no, that's not quite what Paul is saying. That uh, uh, that a mysterion is a is a secret. Is something that you can't know unless it's revealed, right? Like I can I can you know my I, I like to tell my kids that because I'm their father, I know everything. This is just what a father uh, does. And then they'll try and ask me questions. And there's two kinds of questions that they ask me. There's the kinds of questions that I could know if I found out, you know, like what is the um, what is the boiling point of water? And if I don't know it off the top of my head, I can Google it. But then there are the questions that I can't know the answer to unless they reveal it to me. Like, what number am I thinking about? <laughs> or what's my favorite color? Something like that. And the mystery of the gospel 
the point of the mystery of the gospel, the secret of the gospel is not that it's hidden or unknowable unless it's revealed. It's that it's revealed. It's that God has made it known. This is the, this is the, the point at the beginning of the letter, chapter one, verse, uh, verse 15, 16. Um, and then in 17, where Paul talks about the revelation, the making known of God's, of God's righteousness, and then steps back and begins with the making known or the revelation uh, of his wrath. And so here at the, here at the closing of the letter, he's talking, he, he makes reference to that revelation of that mystery, that thing that was unknown, that was hidden, that you couldn't know unless God revealed it to you. And this is how gracious God is. He did make it known. In fact, that's, that's the whole modus operandi of Paul's, um, that was probably the wrong phrase. That's the whole purpose of Paul's ministry is God wants to make this known to the, to the Gentiles. And rather than writing it across the sky, he is sending Paul to, uh, to all the nations. It's been kept silent since time eternal, but now is revealed through the prophetic scriptures. Sorry, Andy Stanley, we can't unhitch our faith from the prophetic scriptures because those are the vehicle for the revelation of God's work through Christ, according to the man of the eternal God for the, and I, I, I encourage my students to underline and circle this, this phrase, for the obedience of faith. We often bifurcate obedience from faith. Faith doesn't require obedience. Faith is just as you are, but that's not what Paul does. Paul talks about obedience that flows from or is motivated by faith, and he has used this phrase back in chapter one. So Romans opens and closes with reference to obedience of faith, because that's what Paul is procuring. That's what Paul is encouraging. He's going out to the Gentiles, encouraging them to rely on, pledge allegiance to, pledge loyalty to, fidelity to, faith in Israel's God, and then to live out of that allegiance or loyalty, obedient lives. And it is this uh, obedience is made known to all the Gentiles. Well, that's what that's what Romans is, is Paul's programmatic statement of what the good news for the nations is. Um, and that paragraph just sums it up nicely. And so Paul concludes to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And then I like to imagine he dropped his mic, which probably <laughs> didn't seem that useful because there was nothing to plug the mics into in the year 57. But he just dropped it on the ground and Phoebe cocked her head uh, in some confusion. But it <laughs> right. was totally there. Totally there. And thank you, Raphael, for dropping the mic on this first season working through Romans in the Two Testaments mm -hmm. podcast. Uh, so we really appreciate uh, your work uh, in this time, helping us understand this difficult but really fascinating text and, and making it even more fascinating mm -hmm. for us by digging into its background and, and its implications. Uh, to finish off, uh, we like to ask all of our guests if they have something that they might recommend to our listeners, a blurb if you will. Uh, you know, blurbs are something that we see all the time in biblical scholarship. So is there anything that you would blurb for us? It could be a book, but we've already, you've already talked about a movie that you're, you're a cinephile of sorts. So if you have a movie you'd like to recommend you've watched recently uh, or a life hack or anything else. Ooh, whoa, what a random question. I'm, I, I want to be selfish and say you should buy, uh, if you call yourself a Jew, um, and then you should buy two copies just in case one wears out in your frequent reading. But in, in all seriousness, for our more mature listeners, because the language is a bit rough, I just finished, as a bit late to the game, I just finished HBO's Mayor of Easttown mm -hmm. um, with Kate Winslet. And it, it's it's kind of dark. It's, it's, um, it, it's, it's, um, I don't think it's uber violent, but you know, a, a little violent. 
but seven episodes and the seventh episode and, and, and the way it ends, I, I, I texted one of my colleagues um, as we, as we were finishing it. And I said, this is the most dramatic and beautiful picture of forgiveness of self and of others that I've seen uh, mm-hmm. in years. So Mayor of Easttown's uh, portrayal of forgiveness is just powerful and, and moving. Yeah, and if Winslet doesn't win every award that there is for acting for her role in that show, I'll be shocked. She ought to throw the mic rather than just drop it. Yeah, I mean, she was just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, thank you, Raphael, for, again, taking the time to just guide us through the last two chapters of Roman, (laughs) chapter chapter and a half. half. (laughs) Um, It was great to have you. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed this guided journey of scripture, uh, please hop onto our website, and there you can subscribe. Our website is thetwotestaments.com. You can uh, find us on Facebook. You can find our Facebook group and Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter. I think you should say goodbye, right? Uh, bye. Till yeah. next time, goodbye. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> the Two Testaments is produced with the support of Stanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Cameron Thomas and Vanessa Kynes for lending us their voices the team in the Faculty Success Center for their guidance, and our student assistants, Harrison Pike, Emmy Johnston, and Whitney Fix for their help with production, editing, and promotion.